Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We used honest, good-faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. And we promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, making it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they are going to show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful, beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. General banter. Banter, Gen- banter, 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 chatter. <laughs> General chatter, as chatter. yet to be determined chatter, just in case chatter we needed banter. it. I think we proved in the last episode we don't need the padding. So I'm just going to say thank you, everyone, for joining us for part two of our series, The Road We're On, where we are taking a look at how the Supreme Court decisions that were handed down this summer, summer of 2022, could potentially affect life for all Americans. In the last episode, we worked through five cases that we think exemplify this concerning trend and one more in our bonus content. And in this episode, we want to take a closer look at the 14th Amendment, which featured heavily in the summer's decisions and which protects some of our mostly most closely held rights, like what we do behind closed doors, who we marry and how we raise our children. In Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, Justice Samuel Alito outlined the court's decision that the rights to an abortion outlined in Roe v. Wade under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment was errantly determined. In the decision, Alito wrote, The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Many legal scholars believe that this sets a dangerous precedent for the many rights afforded to Americans under the 14th Amendment and undermines many of the liberties that Americans, conservative and liberal, have come to rely on. So today, we're asking, could this be two steps backward on the path to equal treatment and equal protection for all Americans? To answer that question, we've got to start with some basics. For starters, why does an amendment initially designed to ensure that black men had equal protection under federal law now inform decisions about things like marriage and reproductive rights and education? Let's talk about due process. Most people listening to this show are probably familiar with the Fifth Amendment treatment of due process, which primarily deals with how we interact with the legal system. It establishes the right to a grand jury, protection against double jeopardy, and the ability to refuse to testify if that testimony would incriminate oneself. Hence the phrase, 
I plead the fifth. If you listen to the January 6th hearings, you'll hear it all the time. So many times. Um, sorry. Um, it requires that this due process of law be part of any proceeding that would strip a citizen of life, liberty, or property. However, protection under the Fifth Amendment has a significant limitation because it only applies these rights and limitations to the federal government. If a state wanted to limit the individual rights of a person within their borders, they could do so. But that sounds crazy. Some of you will say, nobody would stand for that. Well, maybe not now. Probably. That's kind of the point we're making here. But in this case, we're working with slave states post-Civil War. And man, were they motivated to, li to limit the rights of certain individuals in their states without any sort of due process. Right? Who, so, who could have guessed? Who could have thought? So Congress adopted several measures to protect individual rights from being stripped by a state. And one of these measures was the 14th Amendment, which prohibited states from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Rights protected under the 14th Amendment fall broadly under three categories. Procedural due process, the individual rights listed in the Bill of Rights, incorporated against the states, and substantive due process. Procedural due process really applies to the hoops the government has to jump through before it deprives any person of life, liberty, or property. Uh, this used to just mean a jury of someone's peers determining the facts of a case and a judge enforcing the law. But over time, states have established their own you know, institutions and methods for adjudicating disputes. So the court has determined that due process must involve three factors. Notice must be issued to the accused. The accused must be given an opportunity to be heard. And there must be an impartial tribunal, which is really just a nonspecific term for a court. Incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states is, is about what you'd think. I mean, the name is right there on the tin. Uh, when a federal law is incorporated against the states, it basically means that the states have to abide by that federal law. See, the Bill of Rights originally only applied to the federal government, and a series of decisions by the Supreme Court in 1873 called the Slaughterhouse Cases blocked the application of the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause as a source of individual rights against the states and reinforced that only state, oh, that the only rights the states must abide under the 14th Amendment were those spelled out in the actual Constitution. However, since that decision, the court has decided that the 14th Due Process Clause incorporates many of the individual protections of the Bill of Rights against the states. Note, we said many, not all of the protections. Though almost all of the Bill of Rights have now been incorporated against the states, the Third Amendment's restriction on quartering soldiers in private homes, the Fifth Amendment's right to a grand jury trial, and the Seventh Amendment's right to a jury trial in civil cases, and then the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines still do not apply to the states. Finally, we get to substantive due process, the real meat of things here. Um, it applies to rights that are not explicitly listed or enumerated in the parlance of the court in the Constitution. 
These liberties are considered so important that there is no amount of due process that could justify infringing on them without a compelling reason. Protecting unenumerated rights through due process may be one of the thornier practices of the court over the years, and has been a source of many claims of judicial activism or legislating from the bench. This substantive due process jurisprudence is actually the reason we're having this conversation right now and why so much focus is placed on how SCOTUS interprets the laws and documents it uses in its decisions. We're definitely not saying it's bad, but we are saying it's very, very tricky. Unenumerated rights, in and of themselves, are actually suggested by the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment explicitly states that the rights that are enumerated by the Constitution are not an exhaustive list. There are still other rights retained by the people. The 14th Amendment attempted to provide a textual basis for these unenumerated rights in the Privileges and Immunities Clause that we mentioned just a minute ago. But the decisions in the slaughterhouse cases prevented this interpretation from being adopted. That means that these substantive critical rights, rights that should not be violated without a compelling reason, are up to the discretion of the Supreme Court. Since the court is the arbiter of what an unenumerated right actually is, at any time the majority of the court can impose their policy preferences on American citizens. Remember, if a subject isn't expressly mentioned or explained in the U.S. Constitution, we are all dependent on the Supreme Court to provide guidance on what is protected and what is not. This jurisprudence has been changing America for over a century now. For example, in 1905, probably longer than that, really, uh, in 1905, the case of Lochner v. New York saw the court strike down economic regulations that intended to better the conditions of workers. The court at the time argued that such regulations violated the workers' right to, quote, freedom of contract. But <laughs> this specific freedom is not found in the Constitution. It was an unenumerated right. The court later repudiated Lochner in 1937 when it held that establishing a minimum wage for women did not violate the due process clause as applied to the states under the 14th. You can see how things get flippy floppy really fast. Yeah. Perhaps the largest impact on Americans' rights has come through this substantive due process jurisprudence and its assertion of the right to privacy. In 1965, the Supreme Court struck down state bans prohibiting the use of contraception by married couples on the grounds that it violated their right to privacy. Now, this right is another one that is not explicitly guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. Unlike the, <laughs> quote, freedom of contract decision, though, uh, the court made an interesting argument that the right to privacy could be inferred from other rights that are enumerated. The language used here is that the right to privacy can be inferred from the penumbras of enumerated rights. For those of you who are not vocabulary geeks like us, penumbras is basically a fancy word that means shadowy parts. Uh, it specifically means the edges of a shadow where light and shadow begin to blend and transition from one to the other. Um, 
there's a really, really great episode from another podcast called Throughline that discusses this concept of penumbras or shadows in the Constitution specifically. They talk about how so much of what we understand about our relationship to the Constitution actually comes from these shadowy gray areas. So we'll make sure that that is linked in the show notes because it, it does a really great job of explaining. Right. The court argued that, for example, the First Amendment was meaningless unless there is the assumption that privacy is protected from governmental intrusion. Or another example, the Fourth Amendment's right to protection against, quote, unreasonable searches and seizures doesn't really protect against anything if there isn't an expectation of privacy that would determine whether or not a search is unreasonable to begin with. After all, without the right to say protect the contents of your home from any old government authority walking up and demanding you list everything that you have and maybe take a look at it, there's there's no reason uh, to go through the process of getting a search warrant if, if, if that expectation of privacy isn't there. Without the foundational right to privacy, there's really no reason for many of the constitutional protections that we do enjoy. The inference of a right to privacy and substantive due process has been responsible for defining and defending several unenumerated rights that most of us don't give much thought to. The right of interracial couples to marry. The right of unmarried couples to use contraception. The right to engage in intimate sexual conduct, or less accurately, but maybe more flabbergasting that it has to be protected in the first place, the right for same-sex couples to have sex, which was only decided in 2003. And there's the right for same-sex couples to marry and the now vacated right to have an abortion. However, one of the many problems with substantive due process is the fact that there is no agreed-upon methodology for determining which rights should be protected and which are not included. In 1997, the court suggested a methodology which uses some frustratingly familiar language. Hmm. Unenumerated rights would need to be, quote, carefully described and under that description, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. I feel like we talked about that last week. We did just talk about this in the last episode. Because this definition is so personally offensive to me, I will point out <laughs> that the court both limited this methodology in Obergefell v. Hodges and cited an earlier case, Poe v. Ullman, which stated that discerning which rights are unenumerated has not been reduced to any formula, but that each right must be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. This means that any justice who cites this methodology from Washington v. Gluckberg uh, when stripping half of Americans of their rights is only doing so because they choose to, not because it is required. They are just using the standard in Washington v. Glucksburg as a fig leaf to hide their own agenda. Okay, so let's let's build on that indignance for a minute and let's talk okay. about the danger of the methodology that methodology that was laid out in Washington v. Glucksburg and then reiterated by Alito in Dobbs v. Jackson. Okay, in Washington v. Glucksburg, which we just keep saying because it's fun to say, Glucksburg. Uh, it sounds it sounds like a city from Ducktales, and I'm not even sad about it, it. It really does. I yep, yep. I yep. 
I wasn't going to say it, but you did. (laughs) In that case, the court was asked to consider whether the state of Washington's ban on physician-assisted suicide violated the 14th Amendment's due process clause by denying mentally competent, terminally ill adults the liberty to choose death over life. In Dobbs v. Jackson, the court was asked to consider whether Mississippi's law banning nearly all abortions after 15 weeks gestation was unconstitutional. In both cases, the court outlined specific standards for determining whether or not an unenumerated right is protected under the Due Process Clause. First, they held that an unenumerated right should be deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. In Glucksburg, the court held that the right to assisted suicide is not a fundamental liberty protected by the Due Process Clause because its practice, quote, has been and continues to be offensive to our national traditions and practices. In Dobbs, they wrote, quote, by the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy. Until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. But neither opinion clearly outlined what qualifies as, quote, deeply rooted. That's likely because there is actually no standard definition. Uh, Right? How that standard is analyzed changes with every court. But in all cases, one of the goals considered... One of the goals of considering historical context as part of the litmus test for recognizing a new fundamental right seems to be judicial restraint. (laughs) I'm laughing because it just feels so ironic. Um, So judicial restraint, limiting the extent to which justices depart from established precedent or read their own philosophies or policy preferences into the Constitution or the law by relying on external and legitimate sources of authority. One expert added that these external sources should be rooted at some point in the formal consent of the governed. In other words, there needs to be evidence that the idea being considered has historically been a part of the Constitution or of the other broadly accepted law. But that begs the question... (laughs) If we're looking to historical law as a frame of reference for what's deeply rooted, then how far back do we need to go? And which sources of historical evidence count? Again, there's no checklist here. Justices have different methodologies for how to conduct this review, leading to any number of unclear points. And that's part of the fundamental problem with this methodology as it is being applied today. Very often. Justices look for commonality in American law, but sometimes they look to Roman law or even English common law. In a discussion of the right to a basic minimum education, Caroline Venario of the University of Chicago notes that most courts view the time around the enactment of the 14th Amendment as a relevant historical consideration, which is why Alito noted that time frame specifically in the Dobbs decision. The logic there is that recognized rights should be limited in scope to those that would have been understood or recognized at the time of that amendment's ratification. That's concerning. It's a little concerning. A lot. It's a lot of concerning. Um, It's like a little, but a lot. Now, (laughs) not all justices agree with this limited scope. Shocking. Uh, In Obergefell v. Hodges, 
uh, which established the right to same-sex marriage, justices in the majority began their exploration at the dawn of history. (laughs) In dissent, though, Justice Scalia railed against the majority's use of such expansive evidence in their analysis. And it would seem that the court as it stands today is much more inclined to agree with the limited historical scope Scalia outlined. Which is why we're really concerned about this trend and this uh, concept of originalism or that, that seems to be dominating the court right now, which we will definitely talk about in the last episode in the series. But many of the rights that govern our daily lives would not necessarily hold up under the scrutiny of that ratification scope. Interracial marriage was absolutely not acceptable under that standard, nor were protections for LGBTQ people or their right to marry someone of the same sex, or even the right to a public school education falls under this clause. But we're also concerned about the power this could return to the states, because let's face it, the states have made some very shitty laws. In fact, we're going we're gonna to diverge here and we're going to talk about one of my favorites, in that, are you kidding me, this is real sense. And we're going to talk about Buck v. Bell. We are going to talk about Buck v. Bell. I just want to point out really quickly that in the last episode, we talked about Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh and his understanding of history with uh, through the lens of, of, of uh, the um, indigenous population oh, <laughs> in yes. America and how wildly wrong it was oh my gosh so any sort of interpretation that relies on this sort of like historical understanding of what is traditional within america is going to be beholden to the fact that we're really bad at teaching history in america and being A Supreme Court justice does not preclude you from the biases of our education system when you were learning history. Absolutely. The traditions. Go for it. Sorry. I was just saying the traditions that are being reflected in the Supreme Court are by and large, especially uh, up until relatively recently, by and large, the traditions of white Christian America. Those are the traditions that are being considered. They have very little and only relatively recent consideration for anybody who's not a white man. Yep. We we have women on the Supreme Court the that happened uh, I think a few decades ago, right? But a few decades? Like really? Like Right. It's and even absurd. then they're, it's they're struggling to interpret a document that literally does not refer to them at all. Yeah. That was And they're using argument one woman on the supreme court right now is signing on to an argument that says hey this wasn't originally included in the constitution so we can't protect it and neither was she yeah mm, yep yep i mean at the time that the constitution was written and we mentioned this briefly in the last episode like a woman was considered just a part of her household and that household was was represented by the man like she was not even important enough to factor into the conversation or be actively considered or actively ignored right so like looking at this scope we are so limited in what we're allowed to consider as deeply rooted in the traditions of our country 
absurdities. It's, it's just absurdity after absurdity. Yes. <clears throat> Buck v. Bell. Buck v. Bell is who we're going, what we're going to talk about now. Also so absurd. In also, hey, speaking, yeah, right. Speaking of absurd. In 1924, the, the Commonwealth of Virginia, oh, thank you very sorry, much, ma'am. It is not a state. Sorry, I forgot you guys are codified. Special. Yeah, right. Codified into law, the Virginia Sterilization Act, which is a terrifying name. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also it's, sometimes it's called the Virginia Eugenical Sterilization Act, if that makes it not any better. better. Not, not better, not better. Everybody knows where this is heading. Back in the early 1900s, eugenics was all the rage, mm -hmm. and many states had made a standard practice of forcibly sterilizing anyone they considered to be, quote, unfit to procreate, based on traits like insanity, which was not really insanity, that our definitions of mental health disorders have changed so much, uh, criminal tendencies, laziness, 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 uh, promiscuity mm -hmm. and feeble mindedness. Honestly, based on like three of these factors, I am fairly certain that the majority of people that I went to school with yeah. would have been sterilized under this law. It's <laughs> like, important to note the vast that majority promiscuity only applies to women, you know, oh, because right. well, it's I mean, only, so that's it is only evidence of, um, poor genetic character in us not in dudes but that's right anyway yeah any anyway anyways. um <clears throat> the thought at the time was that these traits were hereditary and could be passed down through generations to receive a marriage license in virginia at that time you even had to swear that you weren't those things I swear I'm not lazy. I just wanted to take a nap. Right? <laughs> like, oh. Right? I swear I'm not feeble-minded. I'm just homeless. Like, literally. <laughs> mm -hmm. Carrie Buck mm -hmm. was a young woman. Carrie Buck. Of very unfortunate circumstances who, after being abused and neglected by her adoptive family, was sexually assaulted by a member of that family, became pregnant, and then was remanded to a colony for the feeble-minded because she was homeless, promiscuous, and feeble-minded. After she gave birth to her daughter, the state of Virginia decided that she was a good candidate for sterilization under the law. Of course, Buck did not consent. And it was decided to use her case as a proof of concept for these kinds of laws to ensure that they would hold up under the scrutiny of su the Supreme Court. Basically, they engineered the circumstances around which this would end up on the docket of the United States Supreme Court in order to lay a foundation of constitutional protection for laws like this. Very... Very long story short, the Sterilization Act made its way to SCOTUS for consideration under the Equal Protection and Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And guess what the court said? The court held that laws like Virginia's did not violate the 14th Amendment because of the legal process that occurred before the sterilization procedure. They even threw in that laws like this were acceptable if they protected the best interest of the state. <laughs> Forget the fact that Buck did not want to be sterilized. Her bodily autonomy was not at all 
considered. Nope. As long as the government went through the appropriate hoops, they could just snip, yeah. snip. As no long more as babies there, for you. You know, as long as there were hearings at which these people had probably the best representation. That definitely, could be. Definitely the best representation. And, and an yeah. equal opportunity to present their side of the case. Hmm. Anyway, in less than a thousand words, less than a thousand words in the entire decision, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes penned an opinion that undermined the value and autonomy of everyday Americans. He said, this one's hard to get through, so bear with me. We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned. In order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence, it is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. We're just going to we're just going to codify survival of the fittest. Maybe we're just going to kill people that don't meet our standards because that's fine. Wait, fine. what? It's not killing it's not people, fine. it's just sterilizing them. Yeah, not, hold on. Forced sterilization. Oh yeah. No, that is considered genocide. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're not done. It's fine. No, it's fine. I know. I know. I know we're not done. I know where this is headed. Even more shocking than his words, though, is the reality that Buck v. Bell was never overturned by the Supreme Court. Never was. In nope. In 1942, the court ruled that sterilization could not be used as a punitive measure, but it... it hmm. It had never decided a case that directly repeals a state's ability to make decisions violating a human's bodily autonomy, excuse me, if it's in the best interest of the state and if there is some sort of legal consideration process that accompanies it. Yeah. This is especially concerning when you think about the 2020 <laughs> whistleblower case at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia, where a nurse alleged that many female immigrant detainees were subjected to unnecessary gynecological procedures, including hysterectomies. The Department of Homeland Security's investigation revealed enough concerns related to that situation and other medical practices that the contract for the facility was revoked because it was a private prison and detainees Shocker. were transferred out. But under the standards set by Buck v. Bell, this could be considered a perfectly acceptable practice if we roll back the scope of the protection that's available to us under the 14th Amendment. Right? I mean, if you roll that shit mm -hmm. back, Buck v. Bell is still precedent. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a whole lot to process. That's a whole lot to process and, and to put together. Um, so let's talk through what the reversal of Roe v. Wade does mean, could mean, and how that can impact all of our lives moving forward. So given the overturning of Roe, 
What does this mean functionally for the United States and the application of these laws? Well, mostly it means that it will be up to individual states to determine whether or not abortion is legal within their borders. It doesn't merit a complete rehash, but 13 states had trigger laws set to go into effect as soon as Roe was overturned. Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, so disappointed, North Dakota, South Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming all had trigger laws making abortion illegal, except in very narrow, usually poorly defined Mm -hmm. circumstances. And a lot of them excluded rape and incest uh, in those circumstances as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all of these laws went into effect. At least they haven't yet. Right. The trigger laws are sorry. The trigger laws, um, in Louisiana, it's currently uh, temporarily enjoined, meaning that it cannot be enforced while the court reviews the law. Uh, Utah is still working out how to implement its trigger ban because a lot of these laws kind of were established, but then there was never any preparation put yeah. into like, oh, yeah, if it happens, we better actually be able to execute it. Right. They're what we like to call performative legislation in which people who yeah. um, have no business in writing things like this make things because they want to make a statement. And then poof, now it can be the law and they don't know what to do with it. Not not that this is particularly encouraging, not to be too pessimistic here, uh, but it is likely just a matter of time before these states find a way to force a partial or total ban through. Yeah. And and. For those people who, again, are crying, but there are always exceptions. There are politicians out there who are um, making their campaign platforms on no exceptions. There is even one in particular that I can think of who does not believe that there should be an exception for the life of the mother. Okay. So, like, don't think that this is unrealistic. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's... um some politicians, and I'm not going to name them because they don't deserve airtime, they're minor, to be clear, uh, local or, or aspirational, uh, but that have expressed the opinion that um, A Handmaiden's Tale did not go far enough. Yeah. So. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah. The simple fact here is that overturning Roe gave states total leeway to restrict abortion or prohibit it altogether. Almost half of state of all states are likely to enact new laws crafted to be as restrictive as possible or to try to enforce current laws that prohibit abortion. We're already seeing a divide as states fall into one of two camps, either abortion havens or abortion deserts. <laughs> uh, this divide will impact mostly Midwest and Southern states and especially the poorest communities within those states, comprising women who are too poor too scared or otherwise unable to travel hundreds of miles to a state that protected abortions after the fall of Roe v. Wade. Beyond the specific implications for abortion, though, there is the concern that the Dobbs v. Jackson decision threatens the security of the multiple other rights that Americans currently enjoy. Remember the list of rights that flow from the right to privacy the right to marry who you want, to sexual intimacy, to birth control. 
And while it is true that in the majority opinion authored by Justice Alito, um, abortion, he argued that abortions were fundamentally different than th these other rights because abortion deals with, quote, potential life. This is coming from the guy who denied that, quote, settled law was a thing during his confirmation hearing <laughs> and that, quote, Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court before overturning it the first opportunity he got. So it's a bit difficult for people to trust his word. That's what we're getting at here. Compounding the complication is Justice Thomas, who seems to make a habit of complicating things, uh, who wrote, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Obergefell, excuse me. Because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous. We have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. Who hurt you, man? I know. God. So the current balance of the Supreme Court certainly seems to be leaning in the direction of weakening the power of substantive due process with at least one actively calling for overturning the many rights granted by the demonstrably erroneous process. It's been said a million times, but one wonders how he manages to square this circle when he himself is the beneficiary of a right granted under substantive due process. Justice Thomas is a black man, and uh, he would not have been able to marry his white wife if not for the substantive due process decision that came out of Loving v. Virginia. Which was suspiciously omitted from his uh -huh. list of other decisions right. that needed to be reconsidered. All the ones that don't but, apply to me, right? Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't come for me, right? I'm one of the good ones, I'm one right? of the good, I'm a, I'm a good guy. It's fine. There, there, surely there will be exceptions. Yeah. Right? We'll be yeah. grandfathered right. in. Yeah. If the Supreme Court does get a chance to overturn these decisions, which is not guaranteed, mind you, right, and follows through on this logic, then we will all fairly suddenly live in an America that most of us have never, ever, ever lived in. An America where we see a return to segregation to some degree because, remember, the right to attend any school you want, aka the prohibition on segregation, is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, and not that we think that this is likely to be clear, but Texas Governor Greg Abbott has already mentioned targeting Piler v. Doe, which may not be as widely known as Brown v. the Board of Education, but it is equally important. Piler v. Doe, yeah, I read that right. Piler v. Doe prohibited yep. schools from turning away undocumented students. And that's, that's ultimately the point. The argument here is the beginning of a huge push to make states' rights the talking point. The argument you'll hear will be about returning power to self-govern to the people, because any law laid down by the federal government obviously applies to all states and doesn't allow the population of that state to determine what laws they would like to live under. Now listen, this argument breaks down pretty damn quick. If you look at what happened with the overturning of Roe, however... 
Roe actually meant that everyone could determine for themselves if they wanted to have an abortion or not. No government authority was holding a gun to a pregnant woman's head and forcing her to get rid of her baby. We literally could not have had any more granular freedom. Each individual person in America was free to make the choice that they wanted. By leaving it up to the individual states to determine if abortion is legal or not, the Supreme Court, and let's face it, the ultra-conservative minority, they need to remember in this country, have suddenly removed the freedom of a massive portion of America's population. The script is completely reversed now. The government is now quite literally forcing some women to remain pregnant on pain of severe punishment or, yes, even death. Unless you think forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy to term that will eventually kill her isn't a death sentence. In which case, I'm honestly surprised you made it this far into the podcast, but I am pleasantly pleased. (laughs) I'm pleased that you have. But still, why do you think that? Right. Right. The unraveling of these substantive due process protections of the 14th Amendment could reasonably mean returning to an America in which every individual state has the freedom to create laws that are only bound by the context of a time period in which women, black and brown people, indigenous people, disabled people, LGBTQ people, poor people, and uneducated people had fewer, if any, rights. And little to no access to the means to protect their life or liberty, or to pursue happiness. It doesn't have to be that way, but in order to prevent that from happening, we have to be willing to acknowledge that that's a clearly marked destination along this road. Not only is it clearly marked, people are actively trying to drive us there. They are. They are. It does not take any time at all. to. You can just, just, you can literally Google it. And normally I wouldn't say like, go to Google, but like you can literally Google politician statements about goals after the fall of Roe v. Wade about what's next. One of them literally said Brown v. Board of Education is next and which it's not like the reason we didn't talk about it is highly unlikely to be targeted by this decision or after this decision. But the mindset is there. The people that are are trying to Govern the laws that you, dear listener, have to live under. The mentality is there to bring us to a highly anti-free, I don't know how else to put it, state. And it's all under this guise of like pushing back against the big bad federal government. As if the federal government is the one that is responsible for... Every negative thing that's ever happened in the in I can only assume that they feel has happened in their life. I I'm going out on a limb. That is opinion. It is not necessarily true, but I cannot imagine a a, a deeply informed decision making process behind the push that I'm that we're seeing as we're doing this research. Yeah, at least not on the part of most of the people who support it. Actually, I mean, so here's the deal. If you are one of those people who supports it and you do have a deeply thought out process as to why you think it's a great idea to return all of this power to the states when they make laws like Buck v. Bell or like the the Virginia Hmm. Eugenic Sterilization Act, uh, please tell us. 
And there's a really easy way that you can do that. You can do that on www.firesidebreakdowns.com where you will find all of our show episodes, all of our show notes, including our sources, a handy dandy contact form that you can use to explain to us your logic. Uh, You will also find a link to our social media and to our Patreon where the next episode in this series called Runaway Train, in which we discuss what the fuck is going on with the United States Supreme Court, is... <laughs> Season three is so much spicier, y'all. I know. Well, we, we have just pretty much decided that we are going to just always check that button that says this is not for kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where we discuss what on earth is going on with Supreme Court... That is available right now on our Patreon account. You can watch us uh, rail and rant uh, in a very, very good faith, backed by research way. Uh, Also live on our Patreon right now is some bonus content in which we discuss this whole question of states' rights and why it's a big deal and and how long it's actually been a big deal in conversation um, in the United States. And that is also live because we could not fit that into this episode. So head on over there, check out all the cool things that we have for you this season. If you are not already, become a patron, get all your bonus content, all your perks. How about some good news before I say the F word again? Yeah. Okay. This is admittedly less, quote, good news than it is empowering news, but we really think this warrants attention and we want to share it. And also we'll kind of take everything we can get at this point. Exactly. After their son, Joaquin, was killed in the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Manuel and Patricia Oliver started an organization called Change the Ref with the mission of increasing awareness of mass shootings and reducing the public influence of America's largest gun lobby group, the National Rifle Association. They've worked to do this by empowering young people who they call future leaders through urban art initiatives and nonviolent creative confrontation. Their most recent initiative is called the NRA Children's Museum. (laughs) I know. Or the Yellow Bus Project. Uh, It is a mobile museum made up of 52 empty school buses honoring the 4,368 children who have lost their lives to gun violence since 2020. That's just the last two years, guys. The procession is a mile long, and some of the buses include artifacts like photos, videos, audio recordings, and personal memories of the children who have died. Uh, We want to display for the voters who keep these politicians in office the consequences of those choices. We want voters to remember which politicians are in the pocket of the NRA when they visit the polls in November, Patricia Oliver said in a press release. But here's what I personally love most about this project. The first stop for the mile-long procession was Ted Cruz's house. Ted Cruz is a top recipient of funding from the NRA, and he received more than $300,000 in funding for his 2018 campaign from gun rights activists. As a gift, the Olivers presented Cruz with a letter from their late son, a letter he wrote at age 12 to U.S. gun owners, making a case for background checks on gun sales. The Olivers say that Cruz is not the only politician they plan to gift with a visit from the Yellow Bus Project. To every politician who has stood by, taken NRA money, and refused to listen to the people they represent. 
The museum is on the way to honor you next. I love that so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to us. Get a little spicier than usual because we are very passionate about this topic. And we look forward to talking with you again next week when we are going to discuss what is going on in the United States Supreme Court. But until that time, and especially in light of all of the crazy that is happening in this country, please take care of each other. (laughs) 